Welcome to Not Fair, the podcast where we call out the inequalities, obstacles, or just plain inconveniences that stand in our way. I'm your host, Zoe Mitchell. Ah, college. I'm a graduate student, but I'll always remember the time spent at my undergraduate university as some of the best years of my life. But being a student isn't always the easiest. The late nights spent studying, the toll on students' health, the struggle to find affordable student housing, and most notably, the high cost of college. College is expensive. The Project on Student Debt reports that in 2015, 68% of people who received a bachelor's degree graduated with student loan debt. The average amount was over 30,000 per borrower. Reporter Lainey Ruckstall brings us a personal view on a widespread struggle for low-income students and how hard they must work to try to afford a college education. Hi guys, how's it going? Good, how are you? Good, thank you. My name's Lainey, I'll be taking care of you tonight. Have you been here before? Uh, yes. Great, welcome back. Thank Can I get you water or anything to start? I think so. yeah. Yeah, sure. That's me, Lainey Ruxtel. I'm a senior at Boston University, and if I graduate next fall as planned, I'll be the first member of my family to graduate from college. I come from a low-income family and have already accumulated over hundred grand in student debt. Like my mother, I wait tables to make ends meet. It helps me pay for groceries, transportation, and books. Most Saturday nights, I don't get out of work until 2 a.m., which would be fine if I didn't have a 4.30 a.m. alarm clock three other days of the week. In addition to waiting tables, I'm interning at the local radio station. The job is unpaid, and it was a struggle to decide whether to take it. You're listening to WGBH's Morning Edition. I'm Joe Matthew. We've been talking about it for weeks. The to land Amazon's second headquarters. But I'm determined not to let my income level deter me from opportunities. Which is why I'm drowning in student debt to attend a school with a price tag of nearly 70 grand per year. I transferred to BU last year after attending a state school in a rural North Carolina town for two years. I wasn't getting what I wanted from the state school, and like many of my low-income peers, I was faced with the decision to stay put or sacrifice my financial stability, and at times, my sanity to be able to attend school here. And I'm not the only person who's made this decision. It's kind of daunting with the the loans that you have to take out, but you know, hopefully everything works out. Yago Zaccarato is a sophomore computer science major who was born in Brazil and moved to the US as an infant. He says being from an immigrant family is part of what motivates him to strive for more. My dad's a painting contractor, so he just like paints houses, you know, residential, commercial, whatever. And my mom's a homemaker. Right, so one source of income, that source of income, you know, it's kind of seasonal because winter time, you know, you have less, my dad gets less jobs to work on, so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, there's not a lot of like wiggle room with, with a lot of like financial uh, decisions to make. At Boston University, 10% of the students hail from families at the top 1% of family income levels. It's easy to feel the tensions between the haves and the have-nots. Especially when you're walking down Com Ave in the wintertime, you see all the Canada Goose stuff, and yeah. Um, But, you know, I've never had, you know, the opportunity to have what my peers have. So it's kind of like growing up with that 
um, and not letting it affect me. But for others, those factors never leave their mind, like my roommate, Carrie Sheehan, who grew up in a more affluent home until both of her parents went through periods of unemployment following the 2008 financial crisis. Most of my like social interaction is completely dictated uh, by my bank account, like my friends are all dictated by my bank account, like who is going to be okay with just sitting at home and talking or like doing our homework together and who would rather like, you know, go to Chinatown and spend $40 on a meal. Typical college stressors like grades and social life often feel multiplied when even things like day-to-day necessities feel out of reach. And sometimes this leads to a sense of feeling like you don't belong. A lot of the time I feel like my position here isn't as solid, so when I want to speak up about something that's bothering me, I don't feel as comfortable um, being honest or like being outspoken as I think some of my fellow students do because I feel like my position is always in jeopardy. Sheehan works about 19 hours a week in the sociology office. As a sociology major, this isn't the worst position to be in, but it still takes away time from class. And even with a small income, there have been times when Sheehan hasn't been able to afford basic things. I can't ask my parents for money. Um, that is a narrative that a lot of like BU assumes that you are able to borrow money from your parents. As roommates and close friends with similar struggles, she and I lean on each other a lot. I think <laughs> that um, we understand like everything that has to be done to like get through this experience like all the extra steps all the like i mean it works for us to live together because at the beginning of the semester not being able to pay for my books and like not being able to pay for food like i was eating laney's groceries that she bought and she was feeding me and she offered to buy my textbook like i I wouldn't like we sort of like instinctively take care of each other Mm -hmm. and like you were talking about like um it's it like dictates what you do socially but beyond that i feel like i can't even like engage in conversations with other people about like what i'm dealing with a lot of the time because they don't necessarily understand my other best friend besides this one (laughs) is um also you know very poor we personally have both experienced homelessness and that's something we've connected on so we you know spend a lot of time talking about that and like our fears about that and like you know, it's such a huge part of our lives. Like, I know, like, it's a popular narrative that if something bad is happening, you want to just, like, not talk about it. But, like, I want, most people I know wanted to have somebody they can talk to about yeah. the things that are stressing them out. In fact, there was a point this summer where I found myself in between apartments in Boston and broke, and I was sure I was going to be homeless. But thanks to Sheehan and other friends, I was able to couch surf until I got back on my feet. Every day, I question my decision to spend more to get more out of my education. But the hope is that in the long run, I will achieve enough that the debt won't stop me from living. So yeah, I got into UMass Lowell. I could have done another year at Four Cs, Cape Cod Community College. Um, But I I just, like the faculty here for my um, major are like unparalleled, like the opportunities I'm receiving in my department in sociology are incredible like the the support I have is amazing and like I know I said like I have to work I do but they're you know paying me to be in the department and get to know people and um like I have already 
had you know grad students offer to workshop my grad school applications and my professor is showing my research my research advisor is showing my research to other um, professors in other departments at schools like Harvard and Columbia that those are opportunities I just wouldn't have for BU News Service I'm Lainey Ruxtell Next, Michael Kunoff on the story of one international exchange student's exasperating search for a place to live while at Boston University. When I arrived in Boston, I did not have a place to live here. So I spent 14 days living in way too expensive Airbnb apartments. I eventually found a place which is really nice, besides the fact that one of the landlord's birds keeps attacking me. But I was lucky. My friend Otto Lund, another Danish exchange student, not so much. So when I knew I was going to go to uh, BU, I, um, I obviously wanted to find a place to stay. Because uh, I was told actually uh, by BU that uh, you were supposed to find a place to stay before you came. So, and you know, that was what I did. Many exchange students prefer to live off campus because it's cheaper and you can have your own room. I joined this Facebook group, uh, BU Off Cam Campus Housing. And um, so I found this uh, guy. He gave me an email uh, to the landlord and I wrote to the landlord and it seemed all right. So I signed the contract. I paid uh, $1,300. Boston University Off Campus Housing is a group created by fellow BU students to make housing outside of campus easier. It has almost 6,000 members and it's the perfect place to find a room. But you have to be careful. When I arrived to Boston, I just went to a hostel. So I had a couple of days. Uh, so I was just, you know, walking around the city, like uh, being a tourist. And one of the days I went to the apartment where I was, I was supposed to stay. So I um, went to the address um, and I knocked on the door and there was... Uh, it was a bed and breakfast, and you know they didn't know anything about the contract, and uh, they didn't know anything about me. So from that moment on, I knew that I was, you know, it was a scam. Imagine you serenely arrived to a new city in a new country, thinking that you are well prepared, and then all of a sudden the rockets pull out from under you. Uh, I panicked, kind of. I immediately wrote to my parents, uh, like asking for advice, and. I talked to a guy, like a distant relative, who lives south of Boston and, you know, what to do and maybe I could stay at their place because I was so stressed. Uh, you know, I was, like, feeling like the whole world was just hating me, you know, um, and I couldn't trust anyone anymore. Yeah, that was what I did. Rental scams in the U.S. are not uncommon, so I asked Amy Herbert, who is a consumer education specialist at the Federal Trade Commission, what to look out for. One of the big warning signs is if they tell you to wire money. When you wire money, it's like you're sending them cash. You're not going to get it back. A lot of times they'll also ask you for your security deposit or your first month's rent um, before you've met them or before you've signed a lease. Another warning sign is they might say they're out of the country. Um, and they'll try to get, they'll give you a good reason. They'll try to get you to send them money overseas. Um, but that's also um, uh, not a, a safe bet. There are around 50,000 international students in Boston every year. A lot of them didn't have the opportunity to check out what they were renting beforehand. But Amy has a solution. 
I know sometimes you're renting from a distance and you might not be able to go in person, but we recommend finding someone who can go for you um, to make sure that apartment is really for rent and um, to check things out. That's important. Otto furiously looked for a place to live, but he also wanted to get back the $1,300 he gave to the fictitious landlord. I went to the police. You know, I wanted to get my money back, of course, um, but they said there's nothing they could do, and uh, apparently uh, they get uh, scam cases every single day. Um, so, you know, I talked to the uh, insurance company, and they couldn't do anything. And um, I also talked to my bank, see like, if they could reverse the transaction, uh, but they, can, they couldn't. So, yeah, that was it. I lost a lot, some money and some trust to people in general, I think. It was not easy for Otto to find a new place to live, but luckily he became friend with a guy he met at the hostel who needed a roommate. Uh, my housing situation now is acceptable. You know, uh, it's not too, it's not the cleanest place. We have some mice and we had some, um, like some insects in the kitchen. And like right now we actually have some shit on the floor. <laughs> um, So yeah, but I mean, it's all right. I mean, I, I can live with it and it's kind of cheap, so it's all right. It may not be the perfect place, but he will manage. But an advice from Otto to all of you people looking for housing in Boston, never pay before you've seen the place. This is your reporter, Mika Kuno. Finally, the lack of affordable housing doesn't only affect students, but everyone. Here's reporter Megan Libby on how the high demand for housing for MIT students and tech workers are driving up the prices in East Cambridge and driving out the people who have lived there for generations. To Rhonda Massey and her family, East Cambridge is home. She's lived here most of her life. My grandmother, of course, was the Italian housewife. I remember her telling me that I had to learn how to cook because I would never hold on to a man if I couldn't. I don't cook very well. My husband cooks very well, so he stuck around. Massey's Italian grandparents immigrated to the area from Italy shortly after World War I and eventually owned two houses in the area. At the time, the neighborhood was largely industrial, filled with candy-making companies that produced products like Junior Mints and Necco wafers. Massey has fond memories of the large get-togethers she'd have with her Italian family. Now the neighborhood has changed. When I grew up in East Cambridge, families tend to concentrate in areas where families who came from the same areas they had emigrated from. It was a very interesting place to grow up in. Public open spaces and small businesses have been replaced by huge tech buildings and development, and the family-oriented neighborhood, she says, is long gone. Roommates are moving in, like young professionals. They tend not to say hello, They tend to ignore us if we say hello. Is it because we're older? Is it because you know we're the neighborhood and they consider that they're building a new neighborhood? I don't know. The neighborhood, according to Massey, has changed dramatically and prices are reflected by the new industry brought to the area. These days, it isn't uncommon for a studio to rent for $1,300 or $1,400 per month. Some people may look at it and say, oh, isn't this fabulous? The condo sold for over a million dollars a piece. Well, I get worried because that means that people who are younger, people who grew up here, can't afford their houses. She and her husband bought their two-family house in the area at the end of 1994 and moved in on New Year's Eve with their two young sons. 
More than 20 years later, one of her sons now lives in Belmont, while her younger son lives at home because his salary is not enough to afford renting in the neighborhood. Since 2012, grassroots organizations like the Cambridge Residents Alliance have been advocating to keep affordable housing and economic diversity in the East Cambridge area. One of the things that's really that people don't think about with affordable housing, that it's a benefit for me and every other longtime resident. Lee Ferris helped found the organization in 2012 and is now the vice president. When somebody is in a subsidized unit, they tend to stay there for a long time because it is such a precious resource. So those folks tend to stay for years and years and years, and they get involved in Little League or church. They are part of a community, and they give back. Ferris says the newcomers to the neighborhood are neither invested nor involved in the community. When you have buildings that are full of transient people who are there for a few months or nine months, and then they move to the next place, they don't tend to participate. They don't give back. Those kind of buildings are like little black holes from my point of view. One of Ferris's proudest accomplishments at the Cambridge Residence Alliance has been advocating for inclusionary housing in Cambridge. That is, any new housing development has to dedicate at least 20% of its units to low-income and moderately-priced units. Inclusionary housing is a great victory. However, it also does still mean that 80% of that new housing that's getting built is market rate, which in effect is luxury housing. They just aren't worsening the situation as much as they would be if there was no inclusionary housing increase. Vera says it's an ongoing battle. The market rate of her neighborhood's prices are driven not only by housing demand by tech workers, but also from an influx of graduate students at neighboring MIT. One solution, according to Ferris, is for MIT to provide more housing options for the graduate students. If graduate students can find something of an adequate quality that's a lower cost, it helps them. It reduces their student loan debt. It's really important that any new grad housing that MIT develops is affordable to their grad students. Though their neighborhood has changed over the years, Massey and Ferris still feel safe in their area. Massey even sees some positives that have come with increased housing demand in the area, namely a more diverse neighborhood. When my second granddaughter was born, I was going to work one morning and my neighbor happened to come out of her house at the same time. Since I'm Catholic and she's Jewish, she looked at me and she said, Mazel tov! And I thought, that's wonderful. That would never have happened when I was a kid. We can't just sort of hide in our own corner and say, oh no, we're going to stick with our own race, our own ethnicity. As you know, the neighborhood was changing and the world was changing. From Boston University News Service, this is Megan Libby reporting from East Cambridge. This has been Not Fair, the podcast. I've been your host, Zoe Mitchell. 